Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is founder of Women's Audio Mission, Terry Winston. First of all, let's talk about the ways that streaming numbers can be manipulated. And yes, it's true, sometimes those numbers that you see, they're not exactly what the reality of the situation is. So there's four principal ways that the streaming system can be gained. The first one is called album stuffing. This is used by a lot of artists and labels. And basically what happens is there's a rule that says 1,500 song streams from an album are equivalent to one album purchase. But that being said, it doesn't specify which song. So it could be 1,500 streams of just one song, and that becomes one album purchase. Or at least it represents one album purchase. And what we find, in fact, that a way that we stuff the album is by having lots and lots of tracks on it. Drake's Scorpions, for instance, last year had 25 tracks. And in 2017, Chris Brown released an album, Heartbreak of a Full Moon, that had 45 songs on it. So we find that if you have more songs on the album, and if they're short, then you find that suddenly it looks like you have more album sales, at least in the eyes of Billboard. The second way is something called playlist stuffing. Now again, this is within the rules of Spotify and basically any other streaming service. And you have to understand that your songs can be short and they can still count, but they have to be about a minute long. After you reach a minute, you're going to get paid. So you're better off to have a whole lot of short songs that people will play over and over rather than a long song that they'll only play once, for instance. So for instance, if there's one of your playlists that had all of your songs and they're all short, then you find that suddenly you're going to get more streams as a result. The next one is fake streams. And of course, you can buy streams. It's not the right thing to do. And in fact, you can get kicked off of the platform if you're discovered. They don't cost much, believe it or not. You can buy 100,000 Spotify plays for under $200. For SoundCloud, it's even cheaper, $115. In YouTube, for instance, you can buy 100,000 views for about $500. Another way to do it would be, for less than $100, buy a bot that's going to keep hitting your playlist or hitting your songs over and over and over again. Remember, this is illegal and you're going to get kicked off the platform if you're discovered, but it is used and it's used quite a lot. The last way the streams are gamed is by streaming data inflation. And this comes from the platform itself, the streaming platform. We've found this, for instance, more on Tidal than anywhere else in Remember who owns Tidal. Well, it's Jay-Z, and as a result, Beyonce's last album and Kanye West, his buddy, all of a sudden they had hundreds of millions of false plays. So they got paid more, and everything looked a whole lot better than it actually was. This is also a crime, by the way. And since Tidal is based in Norway, the Norwegian criminal justice system is now working on this. So. You have to take a lot of things that you see online with a grain of salt. Just because the numbers say one thing, it doesn't necessarily mean they're true. Everything can be gamed, unfortunately. 
And people are getting very sophisticated in how to do it. It's not just artists, it's labels, it's managers as well. So keep your eyes posted and understand that what you see might not be reality. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Everybody knows about Steinway pianos, and I think if you were to take a poll, especially among non-piano players, Steinway would probably come out at number one. Now, big-time piano talents might not believe that, but for the most part, Steinway is a really high-quality product. They've been making pianos for 166 years. They're expensive, though. A new Steinway 5-foot grand is about $70,000, and it can go up to about 170 for a 9-foot grand. They only produce about 3000 a year, and if you were to buy a used one, you would pay about 50% of what the new retail price is, which is probably more than for most other pianos. That being said, you might not know that Steinway has a secret underground vault. And what it really is is a showroom. They have six pianos there. Only three people in the company are able to access the vault via thumbprint. Yeah, starting to get intriguing, huh? The pianos down there started about $250,000, and they go up to $2 million. No expense is spared for the lighting and acoustics. It sounds as good as it can get, and it's lit, so these pianos just jump to life. The only way you can get down there is by a recommendation from a Steinway dealer or if you're a well-renowned artist. There are very few personal invites, and most people don't even know it exists. That being said, if you do want to see the Steinway Piano Factory, they do have factory tours. The factory is on Steinway Street in Astoria, Queens, New York City, but the factory is non-air conditioned. So as a result, they only open it between September and June for tours if you happen to be there. Steinway pianos are still handmade, which is why they're so expensive. Anything that's high quality, anything that's handmade these days, you might say is worth the money, especially from a company that's been doing it as long as Steinway has. My guest today is Terry Winston, who's the executive director of Women's Audio Mission, a San Francisco-based nonprofit organization that uses music and media to attract over 2,000 underserved women and girls every year to STEM and creative technology studies. WAM's award-winning curriculum weaves art and music with science, technology, and computer programming and works to close the critical gender gap in creative technology careers. During Terry's long career as a recording artist, songwriter, composer, recording engineer, and producer, she noticed that less than 5% of the people creating music and media were women. That led her to create Women's Audio Mission in 2003, while she was a tenured professor and director of the Sound Recording Arts Program at City College of San Francisco. 
Along the way, Terry has composed and produced theme music for K-Ron TV's First Cut series, Banana Republic, and films that have been shown on television and music festivals all over the world. She's received an ASCAP Songwriting Award, Boston Music Award, and Bay Area Music Award, and is currently serving on the Recording Academy's National Task Force on Diversity and Inclusion. During the interview, we spoke about playing in a punk band and working with producer Lenny Kay, how women's audio mission came about, women's lack of exposure to audio, the perception of women in the studio, and much more. I spoke with Terry via Skype from the Women's Audio Mission offices in San Francisco. So let's get started. I want to know a lot about the Women's Audio Mission, but let's start with you first. Your background, how did you get started in this crazy business that we're in? Oh man, it's it was a it was a crazy ride. I started out as a musician, so I was in some uh, punk bands in the early '80s while I was in college. So I was I studied electrical engineering for my degrees in electrical engineering, and um, I was in this punk band, and we had the opportunity to work with Lenny Kay uh, from the Patty Smith Group, and that's when I learned about the whole studio scenario. And you know, I think back then. It was just much more of a mystery because there weren't home studios. You know, the only way you could get in is if a label paid for it. So we had this opportunity that the label paid for, and I got to work with Lenny, who was a big influence for me because he was the one that kind of made the connection between, like, look, you're a musician, but you have this hardcore technical part. You should do this engineering thing. And I didn't even know what that was, you know? Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I only know, like, straight-up electrical engineering, which was a totally different thing and so he was like yeah and but then he realized he's like oh well if you had the schematic for this thing you could use it i was like yeah and so that was kind of how uh i evolved into you know i mostly was engineering at that time for my band but then i ended up started to work with other folks and um that's how i got interested in it was by being in the studio and realizing you know i I enjoy this part much more than i do um performing I kind of have a similar background to you because I have an electrical engineering degree as well. But for me, it was always, I want to know where the electrons go between my guitar and the amplifier and everything else, the sound system. But it was the same fascination, I think, that I share with you. It is. It's a. I, it's an interesting thing, and I always love, well, that's, like, I would be in the studio and be like, why, okay, your guitar pedal's broken. And so that's when money was like, whoa, you just fixed that. And I was like, well, yeah, that was pretty simple. And so that's when he was like, this is, you're golden for this. You know, if you can come in here and know how these things work and fix them. And, you know, that's a, that's a, a big deal. So, and that was fun, you know, when you're like, oh yeah, well that's not working because of this. So, and then it's like, oh, man, I can build my own, you know, pedals or do this. So yeah, it was definitely a connection between the two for me. Because I don't think, you know, it's a little different. Like, I, I needed some motivation to use those skills. Like, I would have, you know, I was worried. You had to work in defense mm. at that time. So I was, you would know this too, right? And yeah. so it's like, mm, yeah. that's not going to, that's not a motivator for me to use these skills. So, you know, music obviously was. So, yeah, definitely. Like, how does that work? Why is that doing that? How did it become a career for you? Um, it definitely grew out of the artist part because all the connections I made were either through Lenny or from, you know, touring or something like that. So it kept being tied to, um, you know, my career is mostly 
as a musician because I was I was still signed well into my 30s. So I made a living till my late 30s as a musician. And so I was, you know, engineering some, but I was, you know, on tour and not able to do that, you know, all the time. But I, and then I just went right from that into um, teaching. So I was I uh, became a professor after that. So it was, you know, it, it all just kind of one thing presented itself after another. And I I really um, a didn't like touring at all, and I wasn't super excited about freelance the freelance situation either. That wasn't I I wasn't liking traveling or like having to go do a record somewhere else wasn't appealing to me. Um, and so teaching, I just tried it. They were like, oh, just come and try it. At, you know, and this is at City College in San Francisco. Just come and try it for a semester. And I was like, well, okay, that's no skin off my back here. Let's do it. And it was fun. I really enjoyed it. And then they're like, okay, we want you to overhaul this department and make it into its own thing and, you know, create the curriculum. And then Women's Audio Mission grew out of that. So it was just a very kind of natural didn't plan it, <laughs> no planning involved yeah. whatsoever. Uh, just stumbled into things. I mean, that's kind of what I tell people. They're like, how did you get here? It's like, you just say yes to everything. <laughs> you just really just be like, well, I'll try it. What's the worst thing? I waste six months of my life, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that's that's kind of the evolution of everything. Well, let me ask you a teacher question then because I've taught as well, and I burned out on it very quickly. One of the reasons why is after the fourth or fifth semester, it seemed like you could anticipate exactly what the questions are going to be. You knew what what was coming. And that started to make me crazy. How do you deal with that? Well, you know, I'm not teaching much anymore. So there is that. But when I did, um, yeah, I'm not a professor anymore. I'm running Women's Audio Mission full-time. But when I, I did teach there for 12 years. So it is, it's a, you know, I, I've said to people teaching is the hardest job in the world. It's an exhausting job because, you know, you're wrangling cats and <laughs> really trying to get this, or, you know, you've got, you've got 30 people you have to keep on the same page every day. So it's, 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 and until somebody tries it, they never understand how hard it is. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like, right. so if you've taught, we can totally relate, but if you haven't, right. If you are trying to explain to somebody, like I was trying to explain to my dad, and he's like, yeah, I just don't get why that's such a big deal. And I'm like, you have never tried it. It's like performing for hours at a time. You're performing, performing, performing. But the way I, I really enjoyed it, um, I think it kind of depends where you teach, too. Because I still like at Women's Audio Mission, I love to teach because the, the, it's, they're so into it that I don't have any issues with like in keeping everyone engaged. But mostly the interesting part is is just can I get that person, you know, to be successful in that? So that if there's any part of that challenge in there, I can kind of keep going. But I, I feel your pain. It can get really <laughs> repetitive <laughs> where you're just like, oh, here we are. We're at that place again. But I like the variety. There's such diversity at City College and, and also at Women's Audio Mission that I think that's like, oh, the, this person from this background, this is going to take a different tactic. How am I going to? motivate that person to to do this let's talk about women's audio mission what is it and how did it come about well it totally grew from my experience as a professor and i'm ashamed to say i didn't notice 
the vast gender inequity in, until my students pointed it out. So I was, part of it was like, I'm, wow, I can't believe I'm a woman in this industry and didn't notice this. I'm in it, you know. So then I realized nobody's going to, nobody's going to, if I didn't notice it, no one's noticing this. So um, it just started as a club of the women at City College of San Francisco. And then it just, we went to the first, I think, we just started meeting like once a month. And I want to say maybe six months later was the first uh, AES that we attended. And um, we ended up having a booth there. And then after that, it just really exploded because I think, um, you know, the manufacturers were like donating equipment right away. And um, there just was such a kind of outpouring of like, you have to do this, that it's been, you know, 16 years now, we've been riding the tiger you know, this whole time because there's just been a lot of interest and we kind of hit a nerve there. So um, it, it, it definitely grew from students, you know, asking, women asking, like, why are why are there only two of us in this class? And I didn't, you know, I didn't have an answer. So mm. I was ashamed. I was like, I can't believe I don't have an answer for you. So it was kind of my response to that question. And, you know, what can we do? And then, you know, we got the enrollments there at City College, I, I got them up over 50% women enrolled, and then it just became kind of a question from all the schools, like, how did you do that? And instead of me traveling around, it seemed a better idea to kind of start a nonprofit where all those best practices lived and evolved and um, being able to, you know, disseminate that in the best way um, and most efficiently. So, and then it's just went into, you know, we're in, three locations now and two recording studios and it just grew into that really quickly. Why do you think there is a problem of interest, I would imagine, with women and audio? I don't think there is a problem of interest. I think it's exposure. You know, we train 1,500 middle school girls every year and it's really not hard. You put them in our recording studios and it, they're definitely interested. They're so interested you can't get them out of here. So it's exposure. Like they've never had that opportunity to, to be in that environment. People aren't presenting it to them because it's, it's, a, it's a very gendered career path. And so, you know, even that happened with me. You know, my mom was like, you, can't, you shouldn't do this. Where my dad, who just happened to be kind of eccentric, was like, of course you should do that. Why wouldn't you? You're my genetic, you have my genes too. So um, I just think it's, I think it's, we have a weird, our society just doesn't present that as an option to girls. And this is all technology. So our programs really focus on exposing them to all, not just audio, but all the ways that it intersects with um, STEM and science, technology, engineering, and math as well as the arts and music, so that they have options where they can see, oh, wow, I, so what's this? I just created a drum machine using code. And we're like, okay, that would be a computer scientist. And they're like, well, I want to be a computer scientist. They don't have exposure to that except, and especially, you know, we're working with uh, populations that are, are really vulnerable. 96% um, are low income, 91% are girls of color. And so these are communities where they're not seeing themselves represented in those career paths. So that's even more of a barrier of like, I don't see myself there. I must not, I'm just probably not supposed to be there. So this is the first time, you know, they see themselves. So they get to see 
women tra- training them, and so they have role models, college student role models and adult role models, and, and then they have this environment that's super technology-fueled. And it just presents a lot of different options. Like, oh, okay, maybe I should be, you know, a physicist. This is acoustics. Or I just built a speaker. That's cool. I like that. Great. That's electronics. And, you know, in that environment, it's just going to look totally different to them. So it's it's not interesting because if they're in there, they're definitely not. I mean, we have so many, most of our students repeat multiple times. So these are middle school girls and they're they're totally into it. It's just how it's presented and when it's presented or if it's presented to them at all. So you're saying that boys get that opportunity and girls don't necessarily. I think so. I think culturally, yeah, across the board with that's just a, a I'm not saying it always because I had great support from an eccentric father, but uh, you know, I same time I've had a lot of people say to me, well, that you shouldn't be in there. That's not a that's not a role that's traditionally for women. So I do think it's just how it's portrayed. Like you don't, you know, it took, a, it's, you know, finally happening, but it took a really long time where you didn't, see, you know, mostly saw a white man as an engineer, you know, or a computer scientist. So that's, if you repeatedly do that, it kind of sets up, you know, implicitly like a barrier. Like that's, this is the type of person that does this, no one else. So I think, you know, that's, we have to just be a little bit conscious of, of those things so that everybody feels like they might want to do this, this thing. Cause it's definitely not interest once they're in here, you know, it's, it's voluntary. So they don't have to show up they don't have to come back and, and they all do. And in fact, um, that's why we've had to expand so much because our, we're still not meeting demand here. That's exciting. It's always nice to be wanted. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's it's exciting, but it's difficult to raise the money fast enough. So yeah, we started. We have a location in San Francisco. We had to open one in Oakland to meet demand there, and we're starting San Jose um, in the fall. And we're in a five-year plan with the Hewlett Foundation to expand to Los Angeles. So it's it's um yeah, it's we're not. So the I don't agree with the interest thing because we're not seeing that. Yeah. <laughs> but I think if you look if you're looking at it as a percentage of the whole industry. It is a small percentage. It's less than 5%. But we're, see, we're not, I just think it's like globally how it's, how girls are socialized around technology. I, was, I grew up in a household where I was socialized with my father in his lab, which was full of men, um, was only men, and that's, I just was used to it because I grew up in it. But if you weren't, you might not push through that. You know, it's like, ooh, this is a kind of strange environment. I was a baby. I was raised in there, so I didn't, I just thought that was normal for everybody. One of the things I noticed when I was growing up in the business, and, and for the first part of my life in the business, whenever I encountered a, a woman in a studio, there was always some sort of a problem in that the woman seemed to have a confidence problem. And understanding the way society was at the time, because we're talking the 80s, really, I can understand that completely, but it would be detrimental. It's not like this now, by the way. And, and every time I, I encounter a woman in a studio these days, th- th- there's none of this. But for the longest time, it was if there was a woman, there was some sort of a confidence problem, and it was usually if something went wrong, they had a hard time saying, "Oh, I'm I'm sorry, I, I don't know how to do that, or I didn't know, or or whatever." 
I hope my perceptions here don't throw you off at all because it maybe it was just something that I, I noticed and maybe it wasn't the case. But the confidence thing I think is important because once upon a time it was more difficult to be in the studio as a woman and now it's it's much more accepted. But I think, you know, women in, in all different categories of the workforce is, is much more accepted too. Am I wrong? Well, it, that's a really, you know, complicated situations that kind of unpack, but I mean, part of that, you know, I can just give examples. I have two sessions in the studio right now, and I have one, I have a very, very seasoned engineer who just happens to be under 30, but so they're young, but they've been doing this for, you know, seven years and happen to have a ton of experience, but the perception of the client is to continually tell them how it should be done when they have zero experience. So that puts a whole other layer on top of somebody's already kind of stressful job. Mm, You know, they're, they're interfacing with a producer in New York, you know, over Skype while they're recording. And then you've got a backseat driver that has zero recording experience telling this person just because they're young and saying, well, you know, I've done this for And, you know, the woman's not going to want to be a baby and say, I'm sorry, but (laughs) I've been doing this for seven years. And I've worked with every major, you know, audiobook publisher that exists. So, no, we're not doing that. So it just adds another layer to their job that I don't think men necessarily have. And I've had it where people backseat drive. I mean, you know, I'm old and they do it to me. So it's like, really, this is where we're going? And it's just, you know, it's just kind of a constant added extra annoyance and layer. And sometimes I think that gets misinterpreted because we have to navigate do we want to you know address this issue or not Mm. like either way it can go wrong like if we ignore it it looks like we're not confident if we you know call them on it it looks like we're being kind of hysterical and that didn't need to happen you know so it's just like navigating that i think can be very difficult i think this is true for anybody who's underrepresented i mean if you put a person of color in a situation, you're, that's that's a difficult scenario. So I, in, until I think you see like gender diversity, just general diversity, not even just gender diversity, um, in production environments, and, and and until that's normalized, it's still going to always just be a little bit more difficult because we're having to navigate all this other stuff. You know, think of like a woman in uh, a session where it's like all the lyrics are violence towards women Mm. (laughs) you know it's like then you have to sit there and go how do you how we can't censor it we don't want to censor it but then you know the emotional impact of that all day long is just i don't know it's another added thing yeah so the yeah it's really hard to be the only person of whatever it is in the room and have that plus have just the normal confidence level because you have that extra added scrutiny basically yeah i get that do you teach your students how to do that how to navigate that i do i don't know that i that's you know the most of the time it's mostly that yeah this is hard and you just have to keep doing it and when you experience it and you you know because the thing that i really want to tell them is what i believe is that there's mostly good people in this industry so you just with those people. I was mentored by all men and they were awesome. 
And I said I just avoided the bad ones. You know, if I ran into one that was really not going to support me, I just I went I went around just like when you go to Starbucks and you get somebody that's mean to you, you just then blow it off and maybe don't go to that person ever again, you know? Um, so we kind of just keep it simple like that because I think for the most part, you know, like all the manufacturers have really come together to all this, you know, we have $300,000 in audio gear that's been donated. And so I like to focus on that. Like, hey, you guys, these people want you. Um, this, they're making this investment in your training and focus on that and don't focus on the one bad person. You know, let's just focus on the good ones. Yeah. Do you know Jerry Palumbo? Yes. I love Jerry. Yeah. She said that one of her biggest mistakes is sticking on a job that was not nourishing. And Mm -hmm. she decided that after that, she would only work in places that would nourish her abilities. It might be, different wording from that, but that essentially was the sentiment. And I thought to myself, you know, that makes so much sense for everybody really, but I could see how, you know, especially if you're a woman, you could feel that a lot faster than if you're a man. Or it's the same, you know, I'm honestly, um, now I've become just even more optimistic because I'm seeing men, um, they're like, for instance, our studios clients, are over 60% men. So it's not like we have all women engineers and it's only, we're only recording women. It's, you know, like right now in this studio today, there's 12 different men. It's all men. There's mm-hmm. no women. Oh, no, there's one woman being recorded. So um, it's interesting to me that they're making that choice. Like, hey, I want to do this. And they're saying, yeah, I intentionally, you know, like we had Toro Iman, he made an intentional decision. Like, I want to do my record here. I want to record here. This is cool. I like this environment. So it is, there's a change in that of like, uh, I think, you know, that sounds like something Jerry would say, but I think men are saying the same thing. Like, you know, I don't want to hang around with those people either. I'm not into, I'm not into it either. Yeah. Right. Like I, I'm not going to support that either. So, um, and not to say that that's where it, I think it's way better now than it was in the eighties. Um, and I think people are much more aware. And there's just like we have just um, great relationships with with many studios that are mostly run by men, but they want to change it. They're like, we don't know why it's like this, but we want to count us in. Like whatever we can do, we we want to try and change it. So that's all. It, that's that's all that matters, you know. And I think um, I think the more people we train, and the more that they see, like, oh, okay, we are really wanted in this industry, I think that's going to, that's going to change it. So I'm really, I'm very optimistic, you know, especially like going to AES and, um, you know, seeing just a ton of young, like college age men, like wearing wham t-shirts and pins mm. and, you know, coming by and saying hi and saying, I love this. And it's like, that's great. Then if women see that, they're going to be like, Oh, this is getting, this is like normal. Yeah. You know? And then that's going to, I think, be a situation where it is nourishing for everybody. You know, everybody's going to say, okay, this is the environment I want to be in. So that sounds right to me. Okay. So the, the core mission of women's audio mission, of course, is exposure then to this particular part of the business and more. There's education tied to it, right? Besides the exposure. Oh yeah. Most of what we do is education. So the classes we're training 2000 women and girls every year. Um, so we've trained 
in 16 years, we've trained 17,000 wow. women and girls. Yeah. So there's, there's um, certificate programs for adults. Um, we really like to tie that to a two- or four-year degree program. So it's, we're not trying to replace that because I, obviously I came from that, but we're trying to make be the bridge of like, hey, if you did this, now you can do that. Um, and then, like I said, we're training middle and high school girls as well who often end up then again in our adult certificate program. So we have that. And then that, we also have a very um, robust internship program. Um, we choose about 20 young women every year, um, and they act as assistants in our recording studios, but they also mentor the middle and high school girls in our uh, youth training program. And then we also do job placement. We've placed about 750 women in careers um, out of our internship program. So that's um, places we, I think we have 25 at Dolby right now, but uh, Facebook, Google, Electronic Arts, most of the venues in the Bay Area, um, studios in the Bay Area have somebody that graduated from Women's Audio Mission. So that's kind of that in a nutshell. And, and then we have conferences. We put on conferences. We're doing our fifth conference next week in LA at uh, Disney Animation Studios and YouTube. Oh, and that really? one's focused on yeah, and that one's focused on sound for film, TV, and games. We have Laura Hirschberg coming out. Only Blanks coming out. Um, David Floor from Disney is going to do another workshop, and uh, some folks from Boombox Post are going to be there. So, yeah, when, and when the last conference we did in Nashville was at Ocean Way, mm-hmm. and uh, that had Linda Perry and Emily Lazar came out, and we had Claire Dunn, the country artist, came out, and we had uh, Gina Johnson, who had just engineered the Casey Musgraves album. So we're connecting the these young women with kind of these really awesome established uh, women producers and engineers to mentor them. So that's the other thing we do. That's fantastic. It's fun. Yeah, they sell out. That's all. There's every time they sell out. We've done last year was 600 women across the country. Well, not only the conference, but just women's audio mission. I'm really impressed. I must admit I've seen women's audio mission. I think I've been to something in San Francisco, even once upon a time, that you guys held, but I don't know that I've known too much about the internal workings of it until now. Well, I don't, I think not too many, we're trying to change that. We spend all our time and energy uh, training. And then uh, this has been, everybody has said this, like you need to work on your PR and marketing. And that's, I think that's what you're experiencing. Yeah. We, we don't spend, well, A, we don't have the money for it, but B, or the bandwidth, so, but we're trying. We're like, you know what? People do need to know. Um, so no, that's not like you. That's not on you. That's on us. So, so you're helping us get the word out right now. So that's a good thing. Well, I was kind of hoping to do that, actually. Yeah, you are. You are doing it, and we appreciate that. Last question, Terry. What's the best piece of business advice that maybe somebody imparted to you, or you learned along the way? Oh, my best. This is my. I don't even know if it's the best advice, but um, I say, and I kind of alluded to it before, that and well, people will say never give up, but my advice is go around. So mm. I always, that's for everything. I'll be like, okay, so you have a roadblock? Go around. And why are you asking me? Just go around. Don't waste your time banging your head on this or trying to change that person's mind. Like that's how I, you know, we had to raise 
$2.1 million to buy these studios or we were going to be homeless. So that was a lot of, okay, that didn't work, go around. That worked, great. Instead of wasting my time on why that person wouldn't give money or why that person wouldn't support us, you just find the people that will support you. And I think that's the, be- that's the best thing that uh, happens that ever happened to us was just continue to go around. There's always follow the flow, you know? Yeah. There's always somebody that's going to help you. Somebody will help you. Yeah, they'll help you. They'll take a chance on you. They'll invest in you. But um, if you spend a lot of time on the negative part of, like, why didn't that work, just waste your time. You can find out more about Women's Audio Mission at womensaudiomission, all one word, dot com. Women's Audio Mission, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyowinnercircle.com, or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, and Radio Public. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts to new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.